Welcome, everybody, to this morning seminar uh, by the Norwegian Council for uh, Africa on the African regions and the AU. Um, now, uh, just sort of briefly before we, we start, I'm going to say a couple of words about the Norwegian Council for Africa, uh, uh, human rights and solidarity organization, uh, which is turning 50 this year. So, um, in uh, November, uh, in just a couple of months uh, of weeks, uh, we will have several uh, celebratory um, events uh, regarding uh, the solidarity movement in in Norway, regarding Africa, not the least the anti-apartheid movement, of course. Um, and we look very much forward to that. So you're all uh, welcome to to follow Federation uh, for Africa uh, and uh, sort of. Yeah, for our events, uh, there's plenty coming. Um, but uh, turning to this hour that we have today uh, on the African regions, I mean, uh, we're at this point where the AU, since uh, 2002, has uh, grown sort of a strong track, track record on peace and security um, on its mandate uh, and, uh, and sort of on its results. Uh, but also with results comes greater and increased expectations around armed com conflicts um, resolution. And uh, we see that in many, many places, armed conflict springs out of, uh, polit of political transition, uh, problems, turn limits, and so on, and where pre prevention is key. But we also see, um, like, on, on one hand, prevention is key. On the other hand, uh, we see in many uh, examples um, the need for sort of a, a, a really uh, strong intervention where there is already an, an extensive conflict. Uh, now, in order to, to be able to do both those kinds of things, the AU works closely with various regional economic blocks. Uh, and that brings opportunities for regional ownership, obviously, and increased opportunities for effectiveness, while at the same time we have a risk of, of distortion due to conflicting regional interests. Uh, so what we're asking here today uh, is basically are these economic regions building blocks or breaks uh, for peace how, and how should the African Union relate to the regional blocks? Um, so we have two panelists uh, today, uh, both distinguished uh, researchers uh, and they will give their, their views on, on this topic. Uh, first, we have Jan Bedzigri, um, researcher at the Peace and Security Report, Council Report uh, Research Program uh, at the Addis Office of the Institute for Security Studies. Um, and Gita Martins, okay, currently, you just took up your position as a senior research advisor at the prevent, regarding preventing violent extremism at, at the Oslo Governance Center, UNDP. But you have your background also from, from the Commission, uh, working extensively on, on, on uh, peace and security policy there. 
Okay, so uh, without further ado, please, uh, Jan. Good morning, everybody. So thank you for the Norwegian Council on Africa for organizing this meeting. So I will make very three short points regarding the role of RECS in the consolidation of peace on the continent. I will, start, I will start first by going back to the memorial. And I think it was two years ago uh, in Burkina Faso during the political transition, uh, the member of the presidential security guard, which was the Praetorian guard of former President Compaore, tried to seize back the power that the mentor had lost uh, 15 months before. Uh, what happened was very interesting then because the AU was quite more effective than ECOWAS. If you look at what uh, ECOWAS chair back then, Makisal, said, he tried to move towards an agreement that will take into account the grievance by this military. But on the other side, at the level of the AU, the response was quite firm. They did not even consider uh, considering uh, the grievance raised by this, uh, by this coup perpetrator. So at the end of the day, uh, the AU position actually prevailed. While ECOWAS was quite criticized when you went to Ouagadougou in, in the aftermath of the coup. So, why this anecdote? Just to show that the tables are turning. Uh, today, the AU is perceived as quite ineffective, while ECOWAS is perceived as really effective when it comes to the management of crisis. But I think it just shows the complexity of the dynamics when it comes to the AU and the RECS, and especially when it comes to how to supporting peace on the continent, because you have various factors that come into hand. You have a window of opportunity, you have the institutional dynamics, you have country uh, stance in various situations. So it's very hard sometimes to agree that, okay, the AU is effective, the RECs are not, or the contrary. So I will just address very three very short points. The first point regarding the framework governing the relationship between the RECs and the AU. The second point will be to look at the dynamics within the RECs, especially ECOWAS. And my third point will be just, I will try to answer to the question of the meeting today. So regarding the framework, Article 16 of the PSC protocol uh, asserts that the PSC has the primacy when it comes to peace and security on the continent. And it gives a role uh, to the chairperson of the commission and the PSC member to, co to coordinate and harmonize the activities of the RECs when it comes to peace and security. But if you look and funny enough, by the way, uh, when you look at the protocol of all the RECs, ECOWAS, SADEC, EAC, IGAD, you don't see anything regarding this primacy by the AU or the OAU back then. Of course, you have a temporal aspect because most of this region create their peace and security component uh, in the late 90s when the AU was not born. But since then, you, you didn't have any kind of amendments to include the primacy of the AU in the framework of this region. So I think that's a factor explaining a lot of things and the dynamics. And then the second framework is the memorandum signed in 2009 between the AU and the RECS, who say, okay, you have the primacy of the Peace and Security Council, but you also need to consider uh, subsidiarity, complementarity, uh, comparative advantage. So from a, legal, from a legal perspective, the framework is quite flexible because it allows the, it allows the RECS to have sometimes the upper hand and the AU just to support them. But now if you look at the practice, if you speak, for example, with various ambassadors within the PSC now, uh, I had a meeting once with an ambassador from an Eastern Africa country, who is currently mediate at least two countries in its region. And I asked him about the relationship between the RECS and the AU, and he said, we are in the PSC to represent the region. You ask the same question, 
to an ambassador from SADC, you will say we are the PSC representing the region. You ask the same question to an ECOWAS ambassador, he will basically say, tell you the same, because uh, in ECOWAS, for example, the process even to become a PSC member is very uh, rigorous and very disciplined. But you can spend two hours, three hours discussing with an Egyptian ambassador or a Congolese ambassador, and you will never mention the region. So the basic sense of regional identity, even, even within the PSC, depends from one region for another. So uh, back on that, when you look now at the region, uh, my, this is my second point regarding <coughs> how they consider peace and security. Uh, at the end of the late, in the late 90s, you have all these regional economic communities. So the first vocation we need to remember that firmly is the fact that the aim was economic integration. So they established peace and security mechanism uh, because they thought that you, know, you cannot have economic integration if you have an insecure space. But if you look now at these various regional architecture, they just reflect uh, the conception of stability and vision by the, by the state would compose, it, would compose it. For example, if you look at ECOWAS, illustrated by Gambia, you have a security conception that leans toward human security. But if you look at IGATS, EAC, and SADC, you have a, a, security, a conception of security that leans more toward regime security. If you take, for example, the, the, the example of EAC in uh, Burundi, you have first a uh, sense of uh, regime security, but then you have an internal divide among the members of the region on how to address the crisis here. Uh, ECOWAS put very early an emphasis on human rights governance in democracy in its security architecture. I am asked often why ECOWAS is different. Uh, I think I will lay four hypotheses. The first one is historical. If you look at the history of the West, West Africa, uh, you have a more advanced sense of uh, being part of a common, uh, a, a common region. When you look at the past empire, Ghana, Songhai, uh, Mali, the, the, the Caliphate of Sokoto, Kanembornu, uh, you have a, a Tukula empire, you have a lot of empire we, who, despite the difference, the diversity of the region, these people have owned to the same uh, political space a long time before, contrary to a lot of uh, other regions. The second one is, of course, the fact that you have ethnic groups that are represented well across the region. I will take, for example, the Fulani, who are present from Chad, Nigeria, until Senegal, at least. And the third point uh, that was raised by uh, former Prime Minister of Central Africa, Jean-Paul Goupandé, who said that if you look at the ecology of Central Africa, of West Africa, it's very conducive to inter regional integration. Because he said, you can go from N'Djamena to Dakar, without facing an obstacle other than the Niger River. But if you try, for example, to go from Bujumbura to Yaoundé, it will be very hard because of the forest. You have too many obstacles. And if you look even at the political configuration in this, in, in, of the Central African space before the colonization, you find very isolated kingdoms that do not have a lot of interaction together. So you really have this sense of everybody mind its own business. We don't have this kind of interference in each other affairs. And I will finish by the, the fourth point regarding ECOWAS is the fact that the instability during the 90s really increased uh, the collective willingness to address certain issues, to draw certain norms, to avoid a certain kind of behavior that would be dangerous for the stability uh, of the continent. So oh, where does it lead us? Uh, it just shows that when you look at the wrecks, uh, the virus region, you have a heterogeneous conception of security among the region. 
just to use a monetary economy an analogy, uh, the architecture of peace and security in Africa is not an optimal collective security mechanism because you don't have the same conception of security from one region from to another, from one state to another. So some of, a lot of time people talk about the AU when they look at the gaps between the, con the conception of the constitutive acts and the way the AU address crisis. Uh, they talk about the lack of consistency. Sometimes they talk about the weakness of the AU. But I'd say it's not a weakness. It's just a pure reflection of the aforementioned heterogeneity among the region. So uh, I will finish by this point. How to respond to the question to the, the RECs, roadblocks or building blocks? As, uh, if you are, since you have followed my argument before, uh, I think it's a, a gray area in a way. So uh, today, when you look at the main trend in terms of conflict management, conflict prevention within the PSC, you have a trend towards region-based crisis management. Most of the time, in the PSC, the region is in the driver's seat to put a, a crisis on the agenda and to address it uh, at its various stages. But if you look uh, at the effectiveness of this principle, the record is mixed, because you may have a success in Gambia, but you may not have the same outcome when it's come, for example, uh, in Burundi. You have different factors that explain that. Sometimes proximity uh, can mean uh, deep knowledge of the dynamics of a conflict, but sometimes it can also mean a conflict of interest, because you have some member states, we may have a vested interest in the conflict. So. Uh, Depending on the region, you will have the wrecks being a building block, and in another one, you will have rather have a break, just because uh, the conception of security that you will have in ECOWAS is really not the same that you will have in the SADC region. And the challenge now is to find uh, the proper balance, the proper distance to allow an impartial assessment of the background of the conflict, and combining it with the proximity that allows a deep knowledge of the dynamics. Uh, so in this regard, it's not about choosing between the AU and the RECs. It's just to make sure that the AU and the RECs are working better together. It's to encourage more joint action by the PSC and the RECs, but not the kind of joint action that consists into the AU-PSC just adopting whatever comes from the RECs. It really means a real commitment from different members of state of the PSC to find proper solutions to address various crises. I was say just before to Joanne that most of the time in the AU, in the PSC right now, you have this kind of parochial vision of security. Where you have the Somalia, for example, addressed, addressed during in the, in, the PSC, in the PSC meeting, you will have a country like, uh, let's say Niger, who won't, who won't say anything because he say, it's not in my region, and I don't know nothing about it. And some of the time it's true because they don't necessarily have a staff in the embassy, in the delegation, who knows about the dynamics in Somalia. So it's really need, having the RECs and the AU works together is really about uh, giving the proper resource that we create the political will to have joint action that are really effective uh, for the consolidation of peace on the continent. I will just finish by just uh, one anecdote. I'm just finishing a study on conflict prevention uh, in Africa. And I met this uh, senior political officer in the Peace and Security Department, and I was telling her, I was explaining uh, what I tried to achieve with this policy brief. And she listened to me and then she said I was wrong because she said uh, the question should not be about uh, the instruments of the AU. The question should be about the AU member states. She asked me the real question that you will ask is do the AU member states want to prevent conflicts in Africa? And I think regarding the RECs, it's the same question because at the end of the day, we need not to forget that these are the same principles from Djibouti, 
the headquarters of the AU, of uh, IGAD, to Addis Abeba, to Gaboron, to Abuja. These are the same principal who are members of this REX and who are the member state of the AU. So it's all about do the AU member state want to consolidate peace? Do they have the same concession of peace? So it's not about the organization per se. It's not about the hardware. It's about the software. The, the real need today in Africa is the really thing to have. It's a, the need to really have a common uh, conception of collective security. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, after that uh, presentation, I don't have much to give, but uh, just to say a couple of things. I, I always still struggle to try and see myself as a UNDP staff. Uh, after working five years for the African Union Commission. So I'll try my best not to be biased towards the African Union. Um, in discussing the complexities uh, of the relationship between the AU and the RECs, uh, and to try and answer the question whether the RECs are actually uh, building blocks or breaks for peace, I, I think it is important to start from the first premise, which is what is the nature of the security challenges that we face? on the continent. I think that's the first point, which uh, is key. And then we can determine uh, to what extent the RECs and, of course, the African Union are competent actors for addressing uh, the types of security challenges that we face. And in doing so, uh, it is, of, co of course, very, very difficult uh, to try and simplify the nature of the security challenges that we face. But in broad terms, uh, we could say that there have, they are two, two broad categories, right? The first is what we have traditionally called uh, traditional patterns of conflict, which are still very much persistent uh, on the continent today. But the second is the contemporary challenge, security challenges that we are facing, which is very much linked to violent extremism, okay? Uh, and this is the reality, the combination of both these traditional and contemporary security challenges are the reality you find in the Sahel, in the Horn of Africa today, and even in Central Africa, right? And, and that should be the premise. What, what brings these two categories together? Uh, structural vulnerabilities, right? Uh, poverty, inequality, and other structural uh, drivers that are linked to governance deficits. And once we understand that, I would go to the second important point which I want to make, which is that the nature of the security challenges that we have faced have altered our traditional notion of regions, right? What my colleague has talked about is very important. It has not changed. So you still have regional economic communities uh, that are responsible as building blocks for peace. At the same time, you have the emergence of what I would describe as new forms of regionalization in Africa. What do I mean by this? Traditional RECs were defined based on geographical boundaries. So you have West Africa, ECOWAS, Central Africa, ECAS. North Africa, you have the North African Regional Capability, SADC in South, uh, and of course, East Africa Community. That has, that, those, those regional blocks are still there, and they are not likely going to change soon. But we are also seeing the emergence of ad, ad hoc regional initiatives that are responding to the first point I made, setting 
contemporary forms of uh, security challenges, mostly associated with terrorism, right? And here I'm talking about the emergence of multinational joint tax force against Boko Haram, right? In northeast and part of Nigeria, and of course, other affected countries such as uh, Cameroon, uh, Niger, and Chad. These countries do not share the same membership to regional organization. In fact, uh, only Nigeria is a member of ECOWAS. Of course, Benin is participating in the military operations in that region, but the other countries belong to Central Africa. Uh, and this is what you find, again, in the formulation of the G5 Sahel, right? The, the combination of states that belong to both ECAS, the Central African States, Economic Communities for Central African States, and ECOWAS. So the first uh, premise is that increasingly these ad hoc regional uh, formulations are being defined in terms of not necessarily collective security, but collective defense arrangements. Okay? And the second point to make is that we are also seeing membership transcending geography as a result of real politic, traditional real politic. And here reference is made to the membership. I mean, for some of you, you might recall that just in January, Morocco rejoined the African Union after 30 years. Morocco is now uh, aspiring to join ECOWAS. I mean, North Africa and West Africa are distant apart. But why do Morocco want to join ECOWAS? Real politic, state interest, and that is also very important. So the traditional forms of regional economic communities are still relevant, but increasingly we are seeing how new forms of uh, you know, security challenges, but also interest, are inspiring innovative thinking in terms of ad hoc regional formulations. The third point which is important to make here is that back to regions, and I completely agree with what Jan said about regional identity. The regions would remain important actors, but the regions and the success of the regions will be dependent on political leadership amongst its member states, but also the regional security context. And, if you, and in this regard, I'm trying to compare here ECOWAS and ECAS. What is different? Jan has provided a very important narrative about history. But what is also important is that since the late 1990s, you have seen increased democratization of the 15 member states in ECOWAS, at least through elections. Of course, you can challenge the quality of some of the democratic credentials of some of its member states. But we have seen that process, and that has inspired a combination of things. It has inspired a relatively autonomous civil society. And, and that is very key in trying to understand the process of democratic consolidation in West Africa. The relative independence of the civil society was one of the key drivers that led to the transformation of what you had in the early 1990s, which was uh, dictatorships in virtually all the 15 member states, to this increased drive towards democratic rule. What is also important is that within West Africa, you find that there is leadership among certain member states. And here I'm referring to Nigeria and, of course, Senegal, when it, especially in relation to peace and security in West Africa. 
You go to Central Africa, what do you find? There are only 10 member states in ECAS. But I was in Libreville last, last month, I mean two months ago, it's about six weeks, and the head of ECAS did say to us that virtually all the member states are experiencing crisis, right? Both either internal crisis or crisis, you know, that has regional implication. From Gabon, where the ECAS secretariat is, even though often not talked about, it is still going through intense political crisis following the elections. Okay, to, to, to Cameroon, to Chad, to the DRC, right? So you begin to see how that in itself has led to a vacuum in terms of the, secure, the, the extent to which states can exercise adaptive leadership, and that is also very key. The last point which I think is important to make is that the fluidity that I've just described in the characterization of regions today means that the African Union remains an indispensable actor. Because the first point which is important is that once you have the risk of all of these regional or ad hoc regional initiatives being established, you still expect that there's an expectation that they have to be established within a multilateral rule-based system. Okay? And the African Union provides that multilateral rules-based space for legitimization of any operations. The second point is that internationally, it has been widely recognized, and if you read the 2015 HIPPO report, it clearly stated that the African Union is internationally recognized as an actor, an important actor in peace and security on the continent. The third is that the formalization of the relationship between the African Union and the AU has been, or between Africa and the United Nations specifically, has been done through the African Union, especially in the area of peace and security. Of course, there are a few exceptions to that, but it is important to stress that point. And this was in fact crystallized uh, in April this year when uh, the chairperson of the African Union, uh, Musafaki, and uh, Guterres, the UN Secretary General, signed the joint framework for the enhancement of peace and security in Africa. So this formalization of relationship is what you find. The last point is for Africa to, or for the African Union to remain relevant, the, Africa must, the African Union must go just beyond authorizing some of these regional initiatives. It must put something on the table. It must provide financial support. It must also provide technical support. Without these two key factors, the African Union would increasingly be losing its relevance in terms of its leadership in promoting peace and security on the continent. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, we have a lot of competence in the audience, uh, and uh, we only have, have up until nine o'clock. So, I mean, I'll open the floor for questions already now. If if anyone has uh, questions or points of view that they would like to share, uh, just uh, signal uh, to me, and uh, and I'll uh, yeah, we'll make it happen. Um, I have just a couple of uh, a couple of questions or follow-up questions here, um, trying to sort of put this into in more sort of into specifics here, because uh, 
so both of you sort of emphasized the, the importance of, uh, of the AU not, not merely sort of accepting what the regions have to, have to, to come to, you know, uh, with regards to proposals, um, which means that which implies sort of a deeper, yeah, a deeper engagement from other, other member states that are not part of the region. Um, I mean, how do you, I mean, there's a lot of talk of, uh, of ownership and often that ownership is also linked to, to the discussion on, on financing of uh, peace and security uh, on the continent and sort of the, the shortcomings in sort of regional uh, uh, funding. Can uh, any one of you sort of uh, comment on that? And then I was also kind of just... Uh, and, and also, in a broader sense, what's needed? I mean, uh, how do we, to, to put it in, like, in concrete terms, how do we turn uh, Angola interested in, in conflict resolution on the horn? How do we turn Ethiopia interested in what's, what's happening in, in, uh, uh, yeah, in Western Africa? Um, uh, and not least, uh, I have sort of a follow-up question from uh, from your analysis on on ECOWAS. Uh, it was interesting that you mentioned Gide, the, the the leadership of Nigeria and Senegal uh, in especially in the recent uh, resolution of uh, of the Gambia uh, in crisis. Uh, to sort of put the, put on the table a quite uh, tabloid. Uh, question here. I mean, would that leadership be there if if it was not for the for the democratic uh, transition from or like the transition from Wad to to Makisal? Uh, and would it be uh, would that leadership be there from Nigeria if they had not uh, only recently had their first democratic peaceful uh, transition of power? Just a Regarding the last question, I would just uh, make a remark that when you look, for example, at the building of the regional architecture of ECOWAS, it was late 90s when most of these countries were not democracy. So even when these countries were ruled by dictators, you already have a certain kind of commitment towards uh, human security. Maybe the fact that you have a Jerry Rawlings on one side, you have a senior Bachelor on one side, the fact that there were military leaders who came to coup. I think that you have a mindset in West Africa at the end of the 90s that you know we accede power this way, but it's not sustainable. So I think you have some kind of maturity because if you look at the law, you have very few democracy in the late 90s in West, in West Africa actually, but you have this very progressive view on what should be done to ensure that the region do not relapse, does not relapse in this kind of, uh, in this kind of trend. And uh, regarding uh, the question, how do we turn Angola to be interested in the own? Uh, the Kagame report provide, initially proposed a very good reform of the criteria guiding PSC membership. These requirements were aiming notably at the issue of staff. If you are a member state of the African Union, you have a delegation in New York who can cover a lot of issues from disarmament uh, for proliferation to country in B-money. You can do the same thing at the level of Africa, actually. So all these ministries, foreign ministries, uh, MFAs in Africa, are specialists of region. Yeah. 
So it's just about uh, staff management. So it's not even political. This is a pure administrative decision that needs to be made by different states to really be faithful to the commitment that when we come to the AU, we really want the Africa to be considered as one, and you really want to put the resource to ensure that we really have a collective uh, security uh, mechanism. Regarding Okay, um, I think the mindset has to change on the first question. Uh, I remember in 2015 when we had the uh, Amani Africa 2 exercise, uh, the African Union was commissioned and I, I was responsible for the planning of that process. We're quick to go to NATO for airlift capability, right? Uh, we did not reach out to our own member states. And at the last meeting, um, the last just two weeks before the exercise, NATO wrote to us formally and said that, sorry, we are not able to provide you with airlift. And then that's when we remember that Angola and Nigeria actually has, they both have uh, airlift capabilities. And we reached out to them. Within 48 hours, they responded positively. Uh, so sometimes it is our inability to actually provide or reach out to our member states as a secretariat that often lead to that conclusion that uh, there are no capabilities or no willingness. Of course, the higher the risk, the more less likely that you would find member states be putting boots on the ground in Somalia. But most of the staff officers, I would say, most of the staff officers in first headquarters in Somalia are not from uh, the Horn of Africa. You find that they are fight quite a lot from uh, Zambia, from Zimbabwe, and other countries that are not affected by the crisis in Somalia. So I think it is just the extent to which we reach out and the risk associated with the intervention that is involved. The second point uh, is that in terms of leadership, I, I, I agree with Ian. Um, in fact, I, for any researcher here, it might be important to look at the, a research topic on the extent the level of democracy in countries in Africa reduces the likelihood for uh, intervention because of the legislative processes. What we found, in fact, what has shaped ECOWAS is because of most of the unilateral decisions that were taken by uh, military regimes for their own domestic legitimacy, but also their international legitimacy. Here I'm referring to Abacha, for example, uh, who led uh, one of the very first interventions uh, under ECOMOG in Liberia and Sierra Leone. Uh, but that has changed over the years. Uh, and what you find is that when it comes to conflict prevention, uh, when it comes to you know, possible deployment of troops in various theaters, ECOWAS is often quick to have summit-level meetings I remember in 2013, when we were planning the deployment of AFISMA uh, in, in Mali, ECOWAS had had about seven summit-level meetings, and that is meetings of heads of state, uh, in various times, within one month. And the AU was still having uh, one meeting within that same month at the level of ambassadors. So you could see the speed at which you know, most of the states within West Africa are able to mobilize themselves uh, to respond, to prevent, or actually uh, uh, deploy forces on the ground. Thank you. Um, I think someone wants to. Okay, yes. 
please, if you could. Uh, we're, we're recording this for uh, for a podcast, so please, if you could speak into a microphone. Yeah. Great, I'll be happy to. My name is Andres Diaz. I'm a colleague of GDA at the Oslo Governance Center, and I have a background from, as a researcher on the Horn of Africa as well as a member of the Norwegian Foreign Service. Uh, first, you know, uh, congratulations for two very, very good and interesting presentations. I thought, you know, your historical perspective on, on, on the region and how different they are is extremely important, and also Gide's comment on how we're seeing a new form of regionalization now. Now, for a very long time when I was listening to you, um, I, I thought you would not mention the economic issue. Yeah, okay. And I need to move this up like this. So I thought for a long time that none of you would mention the economic issue, and I was just wondering if you could spend some time on elaborating on the economic foundation for these wrecks, and especially how they finance, to what extent they finance their own peace and security operations, and if at all you see any changes to that. The other issue that you didn't really get to is uh, the, the nature of, say, of peacekeeping operation as part of the peace and security toolbox. And there you have a very interesting situation in Africa where you have UN peacekeeping, you have African peacekeeping, and you have some regional attempts at peacekeeping. So if you could say a little bit about that and, and also the, the dynamics of that, uh, and just, just two examples. One is AMISOM, which is quite an interesting, very unique instrument, AMISOM. It's financed by the EU. Then you have basically an Ethiopian peacekeeping operation in the Sudan, in Abyei. It's a UN operation, fully started by Ethiopia. You know, what, what is the dynamics? What are we, uh, and the reason I'm asking this question is, what are we likely to see in the future? And then, um, I think also you should um, comment maybe a little bit more on, on, you know, say we all agree that the African Union has made tremendous progress on peace and security in the last, you know, 10 years. Tremendous. Yet, we're also seeing, as you also indicated, that you are reaching really severe difficulties now in, in important countries. Congo is one, you know, Burundi is another one. What can we expect? Have we kind of reached the end of the road? Is it a cul-de-sac? Or will they overcome? And if they are to overcome, how will that happen? So thanks a lot. Yes. Jan, would you like to start? Mm, I think I will let the financing for, to GD for obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, regarding the nature of peacekeeping operation, in terms of dynamics. I totally agree with Gide's argument regarding the fact that we have a trend of operation that look more than common defense. But the line is blurred with peacekeeping operation. Uh, when you see the legal argument regarding the G5 Sahel Force, for example, it was very interesting to have this argument saying you have actually some states who will be intervening in the cross-border region. It's law enforcement. This is not peace support operation. But I think in this regard, we really need to have more legal flexibility in terms of framework because uh, at the end of the day, these are threats to peace and security uh, in Africa and 
in, 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 in globally. So the trends are that, like, how to adapt, because even if you look at Amisom, Amisom began as a very traditional peacekeeping operation. They were here to support a peace agreement agreed in Djibouti in 2008. But it evolved because you have this, a spoiler to this peace agreement. MINUSMA, it is the same case, because right now we are ending up having the G5 Sahel because MINUSMA is still pretending to be here just to monitor the implementation of a peace agreement, despite the fact that you have a spoiler. What do you do when you have a spoiler? You have a lot of flexibility in the UNEC when it comes to the Eastern GRC with the uh, so-called SADEC Brigade. But we need to have this same, this same kind of flexibility. I think uh, us as research, researchers, we really need to provide more legal options to, to provide the proper framework for this kind of operation. Because when you look, for example, at the Liptakogoma in the Sahel region, only troops from this country know, know the place. So you wouldn't expect to take troops from Zambia to be in this kind of area, this desertic area. So it's, it's, there, there is a real need for legal flexibility uh, in this regard. Andre, you're right in terms of the economic foundations. In fact, that is a very important factor in thinking about the differences between, say, the African Union and, and some of the RECs. Most of the RECs are actually custom unions. They were, they were established primarily to promote economic integration. Um, but as uh, there was this realization that uh, one of the impediments to such integration is uh, peace and security challenges within their regions, it became important for them to also expand their mandate. And that is the reality you find in ECOWAS. And in fact, if you go to SADC, uh, uh, one of the emphasis, and this is the core, and Stephanie, you can actually elaborate on this, is that there is this primary motivation among the states to promote increased uh, economic integration amongst their member states above the peace and security priorities. And as a result, uh, they have been able to, uh, as a result of this economic foundation, they have been able to also uh, develop formulas that would ensure that they're able to fund peace initiatives. So ECOWAS is the community levy, which is 0.05% uh, levy on imports coming into member states uh, from outside of the region that goes into uh, the ECOWAS budget. That is quite impressive. And this is why ECOWAS, for a very long time, has been able to undertake uh, most of its uh, peace initiatives. In the case of uh, the AU, we've only, uh, the AU only uh, came up with the Kagame decision, uh, uh, which is supposed to uh, try and establish, uh, I mean, uh, but 0.5? Uh, 0.2%, uh, yeah, uh, on, uh, from, uh, on eligible <coughs> goods coming from outside of Africa. But the problem with that decision is that um, it, the, the AU member states do not have an established custom union, right? So it will be very difficult for the decision to be implemented, although there is this Kagame reform which is ongoing uh, which is expected to lead to the implementation of the, of the decision. But already, a number of international partners are expressing concerns because this decision potentially contradicts uh, existing agreements that have been signed uh, with the World Trade Org Organization. Mm -hmm. So we are yet to see um, uh, whether this decision will be important. And I think that links to the last question you raised. The extent to which the African Union can implement its reform especially the component on financing, increasing its financial autonomy, 
would, depend, would largely determine the extent of relevance of the African Union in the foreseeable future. Already we are seeing a lot of donor fatigue. It is very obvious in Somalia, where the EU has recently reduced troop allowances by 20%. We are expected to see further reduction in uh, allowances you know, from the EU uh, in this regard. So there is a need for increased leadership from the African Union more than ever before. If that does not happen, it would um, potentially undermine uh, the leadership that the AU is able to assert on the continent. The last point you made about peace operations, I think what, we can, what I can say in terms of Somalia and uh, of course uh, uh, TCCs in Somalia, troop contributing countries, is that uh, Somalia is a very peculiar case and there is a deliberate politics of security being played out uh, in Somalia as we speak today, um, where member states are driven by a combination of factors supported by various uh, international partners uh, that come in with a number of intentions. I would not want to unpack because mm -hmm. we are on broadcast, uh, mm -hmm. uh, but we can discuss offline to, to actually unpack the politics of security that is being played out in Somalia. But the point I want to make at this point is that Somalia has uh, uh, experienced the highest number of casualties um, uh, I mean, AMISOM has experienced the num highest number of casualties, uh, far more than the United Nations in its history of peacekeeping, mm -hmm. especially when we talk about deaths emanating from peace support operations. And that in itself explains the extent to which you are able to do fourth generation, get more TCCs to occupy. And that is why most of the countries that are currently TCCs, Djibouti, Burundi, uh, Uganda, Kenya, and Ethiopia, they all have a specific interest, both within their countries, but also in the region, that has led to their continued presence in, in Somalia. Uh, it is the extent of risk that have been associated with these deployments that have really led to the aversion by a lot of member states to contribute troops in Somalia. Thanks. Um. I have, uh, as we are, I mean, we're approaching the, the, the limit for, for our time here together. Um, but I have uh, really mainly one more question about, uh, about this, which, which starts from one of your points early on, Jan, which, uh, which is that the notion of security across regions are quite varying, that you have the sort of these notions of uh, regime security or stability, in a sense, in in, in many regions. Whereas, particularly in the uh, in the in ECOWAS, uh, we've seen sort of the introduction of this notion of, of human security taking precedence, right? Um, uh, to a certain extent, I I wonder, and this is uh, sort of, yeah, take this as it is. But um, we've seen. So, so in the understanding of security, we see differences across regions. Uh, regarding the AU, could also the understanding of security explain the, the difference in, in effectiveness from the Organization of African Union towards uh, like into the, into the AU? Now, the uh, OAU was criticized heavily criticized for being a sort of a, of serving. 
our, uh, regime maintenance and a non-interventional uh, approach uh, on the continent. Whereas you, you could interpret uh, the AU's increased engagement on this as, as uh, a turning point, right? Um, where security takes, takes precedence over self-determination or, or over, over um, uh, autonomy. Um, but can we also see, uh, is human security also increasingly a part of, of, uh, of the AU way, AU's way of thinking? Uh, regard, or is, uh, yeah. I think it's less a matter of policy rather than a matter of bureaucratic behavior. Mm. Uh, if you look, for example, at Burundi, Burundi was on the agenda of the AU in early 2015, and there was not even an open conflict with rebel movement against the government. It was just a political crisis, and you had seven meetings on Burundi in the PSC over in 2015 alone. So just to tell that you have a mindset in the EU today which is less tolerable toward a certain kind of behavior within member states. But the, the, the fact is just a more, it's more about a bureaucratic trend which is just to say, okay, we cannot do it because the region won't allow it. So sometimes you lack this kind of political entrepreneurship uh, within, the, within the EU that can bring the EU to really assume its role. Sometimes it's all about like, we cannot do anything if the region, but it's, you, you never have a region say to the AU, you cannot come here, you cannot do this. But we have some kind of institutional reluctance sometimes to, to, go, to go further than what the framework uh, really allows. So human security, regime security, it's, up, it's just a matter of political courage actually, because the, 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 the framework is here for that. You don't have in the AU what you had during the 70s with a very conservative uh, framework. If you look at the African Charter for Democracy and Governance, this is very progressive, especially when you look at who are the heads of state in the AU. So it's just up to the commission and up to the chairperson especially, which is the main broker when it's between the region, the member state, and uh, the African interest in a way, uh, to take its role and uh, assume its responsibilities. Just to complement that, I, I, I think, like you said, you know, if you look at the normative framework, it's very, it's very robust. In fact, you could even make the arg argument that it is uh, more responsive to the types of contemporary security threats that we face today. I mean, Article 4H, uh, which provides for the possibility of legitimate intervention without the consent of the state concerned. Um, but what you have in terms of the socialization process over the last, say, 13 years, what you have seen is that it has been very difficult for AU member states to authorize peace initiatives without consent of the member states involved, uh, despite the fact that there is that provision within the various statutory uh, documents uh, including the Constitutive Act, the protocol. But you begin to go, when you begin to go into the practice, it becomes extremely difficult. The reference that Jan made, uh, uh, the, his reference to Burundi is very important. Well, how, why did the AU not deploy Maprobo to Burundi in 2015? Because of Yaya Jame. Mm. He came to the meeting at uh, the level of heads of state and he simply said, this is not going to work. 
um, we should not intervene in a country uh, that does not want us to do so. It was a less than a minute deliberation, and that was the end of Mapropo, right? So within the context of practice, what we have seen is that the African Union has not necessarily transcended regime security. Of course, when you look at the some important cases in terms of you know uh, unconstitutional uh, change of government, we have seen very robust pronouncements and actions taken by the African Union. But in cases of uh, deploying forces uh, or peace support operations on the ground, with the exception of Somalia, where there wasn't at the time a legitimate government that was recognized by the African Union and, and the regions, the AU has never deployed without the consent of the member state consent. And that has been the practice. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to end by uh, sort of asking a very, very sort of brief question. Since we are here uh, in, in Oslo and since uh, uh, we as the Norwegian Council for Africa and various others here, we are, we are Norwegian citizens and we, and we, uh, we, we interact with Norwegian politics first and foremost. Uh, what should be the expectation from uh, the Norwegian government towards uh, the African Union um, in resolving, I, I mean, where, what kinds of res reforms should we, should we expect? What should, what should be the topic in the dialogue between Norwegian, uh, Norwegian authorities and the, and the AU? As you might know, the, uh, Norway has a strategic partner partnership with, uh, with the AU. Uh, I mean, what, what should be on the top of the agenda uh, for the Norwegian government in, uh, in these conversations about how the AU can be become more efficient in ensuring peace and security? I really think just uh, institutional reform and funding. Because the more the AU is able to clearly define its priorities based on its financial capacity, the easier it would be for its partner to assist them, to assist it. Yes. Um, in addition, um, you're right. Training for peace is more than 20 years old, thanks to Norway. Um, we have uh, the rapid secondment mechanisms, uh, which helps deploy uh, civilian capacities to peace support operations, again, thanks to Norway. We have a strategic partnership uh, uh, with the African Union. Very few countries have that with the African Union. Um, uh, which was signed in 2015, and this is a clear recognition of that partnership between the AU and uh, the government of, of Norway. Uh, in looking at how you want to translate that partnership or that uh, MOU which was signed forward, it's important for Norway to insist on uh, the uh, soft security uh, aspects of our response. I mean, for far too long in the last uh, decade, uh, the focus has been the practice of deploying peace support operations. That has been the most prominent, right? Uh, we have not, I mean, the AU has not invested in uh, preventive diplomacy frameworks uh, and how you can actually stress the importance of prevention. And prevention not just from, of conflict, but of violent extremism, which has become very pronounced uh, 
on the continent today. Uh, the second point is that uh, beyond stressing that, uh, I, I totally agree that this is a very critical phase in the history of the African Union. The African Union must get it right in terms of its institutional reform if it has to remain relevant. And this is where uh, Norway can use its leverage through this MOU that it has signed to insist on the implementation of an effective institutional reform, reform and financing modalities. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming. And uh, welcome uh, back to uh, all, any uh, of our upcoming events at the Norwegian Council for Africa. Uh, and please do uh, not least share the podcast once it's published. Thank you very much to the panelists for a very exciting uh, debate.